Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I'm joined by Tim McIntosh and Heidi White. Heidi, Tim, how's it going? It's going great, David. Thanks. Very well, David. Welcome back to the show. If I sound different, it's because I am different. No, it's because um, <laughs> I am, I'm recording on my phone. Normally I have, you know, an actual professional setup. Um, well, you know. We pretend it's professional, but I'm at home right now waiting for um, people to come check out the flooding that happened in my house. So um, I am, I might sound like I'm in a tunnel um, and that's because my house is a tunnel. Um, we are here to discuss Act 4 of Macbeth. We have four this week, five next week, and then after that we will answer your questions should we get any. Um, as always, you can post those questions on the, the Close Reads Facebook group on Instagram or email us at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. We have lots of great content going on. We have um, Little Britches concluding this week over on on, uh, the Close Reads flagship show. And then next week, we are beginning our conversation on Sense and Sensibility with special guest Karen Swallow Pryor joining us. So check all that content out. But in the meantime, we are here today to discuss Macbeth, Act 4. This is the act where in Shakespeare we really get down to business, right? Like things really happen in act four of Shakespeare. Is yes. this, Tim, is this the, um, is this as long as other act fours in other place? Would you say? Oh gosh. I don't know if there's a pattern, David. That's a good question. What do you, Heidi, do you have any sense of that? Because I've always thought of the act fours, like act four being pretty long and then act five being pretty short. I think that, or at least five typically is shorter than, than four, I think. But mm-hmm. is this, is this a long act for, do you know? I think it's par for the course. Um, there are, I mean, this is one of Shakespeare's shortest plays. Um, but and a lot. Yeah, right? I mean, there's only so much darkness a person can absorb at one sitting. Uh, but yeah, I think this is pretty much par for the course for Shakespeare. A lot happens in act four. Uh, a lot of threads start to come together, but might feel disjointed a little bit at first. Mm. 
So, you know, you're talking about threads that feel disjointed. One of the things that I was um, intrigued by, or at least got me thinking, is that Act 4 begins with the witches in this cave, right? Um, mm-hmm. The stage direction of the version that I have says, Act 4, scene 1, a cavern in the middle of boiling cauldron. Um, and then there's thunder and the witches enter and all that. Um, and we get this sort of sing-songy dialogue between the three witches. And that took me back to the very beginning of the play. Um, and I was wondering if, in either of your estimation, we are meant. this is meant to mirror Act 1, Scene 1, with the witches there. Are we, are we getting... I mean, I'm not saying, you know, I don't know. If, if it is something formal, like you think he's formally mirroring something, then I would love to hear about that. Um, but even thematically, I mean, is there some... Can, I guess, what, I guess what I'm saying is, can we compare Act One, Scene One, and the Witches, and Act Four, Scene One, and the Witches? Because um, when I see things like that, personally, my brain sort of says, "Wait, is this kind of some sort of a reset? Is mm-hmm. this some sort of like the story is taking a turn, and and the witches are meant to sort of indicate that?" So I'm curious what either of you think about that. How do you let you go first? Yes, absolutely. I do think there's something formal and thematic going on here at these. There's the very first. Uh, scene of act four um in in all great stories the trajectory of the character moves from ignorance to knowledge right and in um sometimes that knowledge is redemptive and sometimes it isn't and i i think in Macbeth it it isn't because this is a play of inversions this is a play in which the the opposite thing happens that we want to happen or would be good to happen that would be virtuous and redemptive to happen. That that you, you're going to want to look for it, kind of the dark underbelly of that, flipped over, inverted. So, in his in in the first scene with the witches, uh, you have the witches plotting to take him to a dark knowledge that will produce dark action. And the same thing happens here. He moves from ignorance to knowledge, but it's not a holy knowledge. It's an unholy, inverted, corrupted kind of knowledge. So I think that there's a formal and a thematic element happening here. Hmm. So I even noticed, for example, in Act 1, Scene 1, it says, what does it say? Like a desert place? Thunder and lightning? The heath, yeah. I mean, it's is yeah. it the blasted heath. Yeah. And then here in four, we have this, this cavern with a boiling cauldron. Are these locations meaningful in some way, Tim? I mean, are they just meant to be, I don't know, dark and creepy and ghostly? Or, or do you think that there is something meaningful in that we have a cavern here and we had a the, the heath or a desert place, as the stage direction says in Act 1.1? David, I don't know. I, I, I did not read it as symbolically significant. But I'm, I might be missing something. Maybe there is something going on. Heidi, Heidi, you're better on these things than I am. Do you think there's something significant going on? Um, I, I mean, as David pointed out, it's, it could be a mirror of what's happening in the theme, right? This lifeless place, this blasted heath, everything has been, there's nothing growing. It's, it's just a place of darkness. And it always happens at night, which of course is significant as darkness closes in on Macbeth and closes in on Scotland. The source of it is this kind of dark cavern where the witches dwell. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a dark womb. It's just a creepy place. Yeah. The wound idea is interesting um, because the witches are clearly, they seem to be saying we're in the, we're in the middle of something here. Mm-hmm. You know, our plot has been, is unfolding, right? And 
what's going to happen next. And they're kind of talking about each, in each case, they're talking about, well, next we got to meet Macbeth, right? Am I, am I right? Is that, am I remembering that right? Yeah. Act one, they're saying we're going to, yeah. we're going to release Macbeth into the plot or capture, you know, entangle him up in the plot. And then now here they're saying, all right, we got to meet with him again. Right. But it, you know, the, you know, act one seems to be the sort of like birthing of the plot and four, it seems to be like they're getting back together and saying, all right, so how's it going? You know, they're like, yeah, they're right. like, they're like, um, uh, screw tape and, and his apprentice touching base on how things are going with the, with the, huh. uh, temptation. Yeah. yeah and good. The, with the Hurley Burley, I suppose. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I, I think something else that's going on is that Macbeth is moving just as Heidi said from ignorance to knowledge and also from hmm. knowledge now to action. Now mm. he's already taken action. He has already made sure that Banquo's killed, but he's doubling down on that action with he's going to kill Macduff and Macduff's children. That's what happens in the is it the next scene or the, it, the, the, the last scene of Act 4, uh-huh. which is also very much in keeping with this traditional structure. So in the Aeneid, Aeneas goes to the underworld and he's mimicking Odysseus's trip to the underworld. And there he discovers his father and his father tells him of his destiny. And from that destiny, um, Aeneas goes and executes his destiny. He takes action in pursuit of that destiny, which is the founding of Rome, landing on the shores and founding Rome. So hmm. also very much in keeping with kind of that, that traditional story arc that we've not just grown accustomed to, it just works. It just is so... Mm-hmm. The reason it's such a strong tradition is because it's so powerful in its execution. Agreed. Hmm. I lo- See, th- Tim, this is why you're good on the show because you're, you're always good at like drop that Aeneas reference in or bring in another story. I'm a name dropper. <laughs> I'm a name dropper, David. <laughs> hey, hey, listen, I, name name dropping in in uh, teaching or talking about literature at all is comparison's a great tool, right? That's why it's one of the common yeah. topics. The science of relations that is an education. That's right. So, okay, I want to think more about this um, this four point one versus one point one because. I've always had this question about this play and we talked a little bit about this here and there, but how much are the witches a key to understanding, like to interpreting what's going on in this play? Like, are they, are they truly crucial to understanding the themes and getting at the heart of what's going on in terms of even in Macbeth's heart and, and within the characters themselves, or are they, or are they to be read more chorus like? And I've asked a similar question, I think, back when we did 1.1. But now that they're yeah. back again in 4.1, I would I would like I wonder if you guys could help me with that. Because this is the question I've always had. As you know, this is not one of my favorite plays. Um, but it's got it's a curiosity play for me. There's lots of these little formal things and I'm wondering what Shakespeare is doing. So Tim, what do you think about that? I mean how how much do do the how much do the wishes truly matter thematically and to the plot of this play? Let me ask you if let me ask you this. Let's um, replace the witches with mm-hmm. a non-supernatural set of characters. Um, okay. Let's imagine, uh, and if you can do better, please do better than I'm about to do. Let's imagine Seems unlikely. Three, <laughs> three 
scouts or maybe even like yeah three scouts have arrived from an alien country uh-huh. and they are you know they're like they're soothsayers you know but we don't think that they're necessarily like supernatural they're just maybe they're astronomists or something like that and they have looked at the stars and they have predicted Macbeth you will not just be Thane of Cordor you will also be um you'll become king you'll supplant Duncan okay Okay. And that's the revelation that happens at the beginning with Banquo and Macduff. Like they're sneaking in and meeting right with uh, Rahab or something. Right. And Banquo and, and Macbeth <laughs> are equally skeptical. That was good. There. They're equally skeptical. And, uh, and then what do you know? Macbeth becomes Thane of Cordor. Maybe these soothsayers are... Maybe they're right. Maybe they, you know, I am going to become king. And the plot unfolds traditionally as it unfolds. And then there's a second meeting and Macbeth goes and he meets with these soothsayers from another country. I think that the plot works. It continues to work. I don't think the plot is the structure of the plot or the characters become shaky. I just think it's a lot less interesting. It's just not as as fascinating. Now, the counter to this would mm-hmm. be maybe Heidi's going to say this, but to him, the supernatural element is actually what's driving the play forward. That's what's really going on here. It's not Macbeth. Macbeth, Macbeth is like subject to the supernatural whims as represented by Hecate and the three witches. So, yeah, of course the plot is shallower. Of course the play is not as interesting. In fact, the play's not even really going to work that well hmm. if you remove the supernatural element. Is that what you would say? Um, without the witches, it's Richard III. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. Yeah. <laughs> that was so good. I, yeah. I, like, imagine Heidi sitting over there just being like, can I just go ahead and say this is going to, like, it's just Richard III. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, without, without... I have a smart... Thing to say, Tim. Stop talking. What you're <laughs> right, right. Oh, I know I'm going to have my turn to say the smart thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, the play works fine because ambition is in the soul and the heart of every human person. It is the the give give uh, somebody like Macbeth the opportunity to kill Duncan. Is he going to take it? That's moderately interesting. That's the plot of Richard the Third. Um, hmm. And which is not one of Shakespeare's greatest plays, although it's a good play. So, so it's Richard the Third with interest, with maybe more interesting writing than inter- than Richard the Third had, like more interesting, sure. just dot, like, right. line to line is maybe more. It makes it like an early, reasonably good precursor to the great history plays. Okay, mm. okay. Um, but so, so, and this so is true, even though the witches are. This is true, even though the witches are not even in it relatively that much. Right, right? because if you take out the the witches, you gut the theme of fate versus free will. Hmm. It makes it makes it that the ghost, of course, is a figment of Macbeth's imagination. The bloody dagger is just an evidence of madness, which is some people's opinion about Macbeth anyway. Right? Hmm. Some people read it and they think it's all in his head, and the witches are a flaw, and blah blah blah. But hmm. that I think takes away from the real heart of the dark of darkness in this play, which is: Does Macbeth have a choice? Can he? 
can he not kill Duncan and not go mad and not go into the existential void that is the consuming darkness of this play? And it is the presence of the witches that makes that a compelling question. Hmm. So one of the reasons I asked this is because I remember teaching this play mm-hmm. and, and this was when I was first starting teaching. And so there's all this anxiety about how do I, how do I unpack everything that's going on in a, in a play with limited amount of time with, you know, all the, I mean, there's all the literary stuff you got to get into and all the historical stuff that you could get into and all that. And right. I was reading it and uh, re- reading about it and reading about how other people approached it. And there seemed to be this camp of people who, even in teaching it, they kind of avoided really, really diving into the witches. And I think it might be because their, their scenes are so short. And, right. And even, even here in 4.1, it's what, 20 lines? Am I, th- am I right about that? It's not long. None of right. the witches' scenes well, are very 1.1 long. 1.1 is quite short. I guess 4.1... Is long, because that's when you it have It continues on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. yeah, the predictions of Macbeth's fall that he completely misses. He misses the opportunity to go into knowledge because he interprets the wrong knowledge. So... Mm. Um, so I think that this scene is super important to the plot, but like I said, if you just want to focus on ambition, and I think that's one of the things about kind of imposing Aristotle's poetics on the Shakespearean model of tragedy, mm-hmm. that you're, mm-hmm. we're looking for some kind of fatal flaw in the main character that's going to lead to his downfall. Shakespeare's tragedies, his great tragedies, his high tragedies are always more complex than that. It isn't just that Macbeth is ambitious. It's that all of the dark forces of the universe are plotting against him so what can he do about that that's what makes Macbeth a compelling play and the witches are essential to that because they represent they represent the nothingness that he can do exactly the outside force that's that's moving him towards darkness and 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 being completely lost his his ambition is there and that's what moderns focus on right this is a play about a man who's overly ambitious there's that's true that's not wrong but it isn't the whole story there's also the witches Hmm. so then can i echo that yeah of course like if you're a teacher and you're listening to this podcast um i think what heidi said is so important and it, it, it's so tempting to read Shakespeare, Shakespeare's kings especially, as if they are Oedipus-speaking Elizabethan English. Hmm. They're, they're not. They're a... Hmm. That's, yeah, that's good. They're tragedies for a different reason. So in Oedipus, in Oedipus Rex by Sophocles, the entire plot, I mean every word of the plot, is about figuring out that the, the reason that the city of Thebes is suffering the plague is because of a critical flaw within Oedipus. And when Oedipus sees this error that he has made, then presumably the plague is going to lift, the city will be free again, and he will have to suffer the consequences. I think it's because there's so much similarity between Shakespeare's great kings and his great heroes and that model it's tempting to go hunting i'm just echoing what heidi already said it's tempting to go hunting for that fatal flaw and what do you know there's one readily available he's ambitious but shakespeare's plots and shakespeare's characters are they're just a lot more 
nuanced and richer. I hate to say this because I love the Greek tragedies, but it's it's a sure, more sure. dynamic vision of human of human failing and of hmm. human society. Shakespeare got to build on the back of the great Greek tragedians, you know, he, and you can sure, see sure, the yeah. influence really clearly. Um, yeah. But if you're a teacher, I would recommend don't just play the single note that Macbeth or Richard III is a singly flaw, a, a, a character with a single flaw that must be eradicated so that everything must... No, there's a lot more going on there. And I think that you can kind of like confine and stifle the beauty and the kind of flourishing and kind of sprawling nature of the play if you just confine everything to hunting and like seeking to eradicate that that single flaw. Mm. Right. So, so then would you say that this is a play... So, well, I guess we tell you, Heidi, you've talked about the idea that, you know, he, perhaps he, so let me, let me think about this. Let's try to think of how to ask this. So listeners, skip ahead 15 seconds if you need to. <laughs> David, so, David, can I, David, can I buy you a little time in like sure. one and just give you an example of what I think, um, someone who did the thing that I'm in, maybe Heidi is complaining about in, um, Lawrence Olivier, one of the great, British actors of the last 200 years. I mean, an incredible actor. However, he plays Hamlet. And, and at the beginning of Hamlet, there's a foreword to the movie. So he makes a movie in black and white. It's rich. It's beautiful. But there's a foreword to the movie that Shakespeare did not write. And basically, Laurence Olivier, who I think also directed the film, smuggles in this forward that says, this is the story of a man who couldn't make up his mind. Right. And so yeah. now Hamlet has become huh. the story of a single error, a man full of indecision. Right. And the whole play is read as this guy dressed in black who's really gothy and sad that his dad died. But he just can't make up his mind. You're like, no, no, no. I mean, no, right. There's so much more to what's going on in that play. Okay, so, so you just yeah. Go no, go ahead, go ahead, finish. Well, that, that's that's the end of the story. That's the, end of the story. <laughs> I just think that that temptation is not to just harp on a single issue is not an amateur's temptation. It's a pro's temptation. If Lawrence Olivier slapped a forward on there. I'm like, Lawrence Olivier is so awesome. And if he kind of did that thing, it's, it's, I understand the temptation is a strong draw. Right. Yeah. So, okay. In some ways though, since, since my job is to be devil's advocate and come up with questions, um, in some ways, if we say, well, you know, the witches represent the fact that, that things are inevitable you know, they represent the power of the, of fate or the fates, I suppose. Does that in any way let Macbeth or Richard III, but in particular, especially in this play, um, let Macbeth off the hook? Like, is his ambition or the, the overwhelming um, power of his disordered ambition something that he could not have resisted given that? I mean, well, 
Right. That, that I think that you're getting at the heart of the terror of this play, which is something Tim and I talked about when we talked about act three, um, when it was just the two of us is that right. if, which one of those options is more horrifying. Yeah. 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 Right. And, or a mingling of both. Like that's the, mm. like the dread and the darkness of this play is could Macbeth have stopped this train of destruction coming at him or could he not have? And which one is worse? Which one is more human? Mm. Which one hmm. is the, like, and that is Macbeth. And so you must have the witches for that. Otherwise, so, it's just a regular play about some bad guy who got what was coming to him. So can we look at Act 4 with this stuff in mind? Can yes. we look at the way this plays out in Act right. 4? Um, should we... <laughs> some, some people might now be hearing my dog barking in the background. Um, <laughs> Hi, Harper. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm... I've had people who have been guests on podcasts uh, have their dogs start barking, but I've never had, had that by myself. So, <laughs> um, um, maybe the maybe the fates have overtaken. That's right. Is it fate going crazy well. now? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, um, okay. So let's look at Acts four point one with this in mind. Can can the two of you read the bit there at the beginning, uh, playing each of the characters of the uh, of the different witches i think well there's three isn't there so i guess i need to play something yeah. um but i just walked away from my book to tell the dog to be quiet uh, so let so let's 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 read through this and think about the witches within this context and then think about how Macbeth responds to them is that does that work as a plan for you guys for a few minutes that works as a plan Okay, Heidi, why don't you play the uh, first witch there for us, and then Tim, you play two, and I'll play three. And Got then we can, we can look at them, those few lines there, and then we can dive into, uh, into how Macbeth responds. All right. Okay. Thrice the brinded cat hath mewed. Thrice and once the hedge pig whined. Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> uh, har- <laughs> harpier cries, tis time, tis time. Round about the cauldron go, in the poisoned entrails throw, toad that under cold stone, days and nights hath thirty-one, sweltered venom sleeping got, boil thou first in the charmed pot. Double, 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 double toil, toil and, and trouble, trouble fire, fire burn, and, and cauldron, cauldron bubble. bubble. Fillet of finny snake in the cauldron boil and bake, eye of newt and toe of frog. Wool of bat and tongue of dog, adder's fork and blind worm's sting, lizard's leg and howlet's wing, for a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth, boil and bubble. Double, 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 double toil and trouble, fire burn, fire burn and, cauldron and cauldron bubble. Scale of dragon, tooth of wolf, witch's mummy, mon golf, of the uh, ravined sea salt shark, root of hemlock, dig in the dark. Liver of, liver of blaspheming Jew, gall of goat and slips of you, silvered in the moon's eclipse, nose of Turk and Tartar's lips, finger of birth strangled babe, ditch delivered by a drab, make the gruel thick and slab, add thereto a tiger's chaudron for the ingredients of our cauldron. Double, double, double toil and trouble, fire burn, burn and, and cauldron, cauldron bubble. bubble. Cool it with a baboon's blood, then the charm is fixed and good. 
Okay, I, I want to pause there because one of the things that I was noticing when teaching this book, when reading about it, when reading about teaching it and things like that, was there is this sense of dissonance, I think, in in the wishes in some ways. Because mm-hmm. there are lines, there, there's this poetic musicality to them that almost feel like nursery rhymes in some ways. Yes. And so it makes it... Uh, difficult to, you know, it's easy to, it almost makes you want to just skip over the sort of nonsensicalness of what they're saying. Um, is, what is, how do you approach that, Heidi? That, does that, yeah. does that, the musicality of that, I mean, when, if you're talk, working about, if you're thinking about this yourself or teaching, mm-hmm. or whatever, I, mean, I don't want to spend too much time specifically on teaching um, mm-hmm. per se, but do you, do you get that sense of dissonance or is that completely, am I making something? No, I think that the dissonance that I always pick up on, and I always read this scene with my students. Every year when I teach Shakespeare, I even if I'm just only have a couple of weeks to do it and I'm picking and choosing from lots of different plays to give an overview, this is a go-to scene that I always, always have them do because it's so much fun for kids to read this. Like you pointed out the nursery rhyme, the sing-song rhythm, yet contrasted with the content of what they're saying, which is evil, right? And so I like to talk about that with my students. Um, and this is such a, so memorable. Even people who don't know Shakespeare know double, double toil and trouble, right? So that, that little couplet there is famous and it should be because it's brilliant. It's just this little sing song verse that sticks in your head and it, it encapsulates these, which is, it sounds like a spell, and um, so I think the rhythm here is really important and intentional and it's fun to read, but obviously what they're doing is conjuring powers of darkness to bring down an entire nation. So that's not really good. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So Tim, do you feel like, do you emphasize, um, do you, em- do you, do you feel like you need to emphasize the darkness of what's going on there? Or do you think that is now, it, it's just sort of obvious. I, I don't feel like I need to emphasize it. I will tell you one thing that I emphasize is that what, what the witches are kind of introducing when they are like adding all these, these ingredients to the cauldron. I'm about to go on like a big philosophical turn. So do it. Hang man. on. Um, <laughs> Everyone hang on to your I'm saddles. I'm excited. Whatever. I can't wait. It's about to happen. <laughs> they're, they're, they're calling back, as we've said on this show, to this sort of like pre-Christian era. And one thing that the Christian era has done, and like this is important to hear very closely, is that there's, a kind of demystification that Christianity brought to the world. In other words, um, it is not the thing, things in themselves that are evil and wrong and um, kind of like spiritually poisoned, hmm. but it's it is the human will more than anything else that has kind of like caused this rupture in the fabric of the universe. So 
let me say a little bit more about what I mean about that. When you read what the witches are saying, I mean, these beautiful, awful, descriptive like, things that they are throwing into the cauldron, eye of newt, toe of frog, wool of bat, tongue of dog, adder's fork, blindworm, blindworm sting. Those things have that we have like these kind of visceral reactions to them. And I, it harkens back to a time when like the whole world was unpredictable and chaotic and haunted by the spirits of good and the spirits of bad. And Christianity comes along and it says, no, actually there's one God and the universe is organized to such an extent that it's predictable. We, we, we don't think that there's any inherent like spiritual poison, spiritual poison in the adder's fork. Is there like real poison that could do real physical harm? Absolutely. But the kind of demystification that comes along, and, and I'm not the first to, to talk about this, I probably the most well-known um, contemporary that talks about this is um, Charles Taylor in a, in a secular age. There's something um, that happens in the world where when you have a monotheistic view of the world, the world becomes a little bit less haunted, a little bit more predictable. And hmm. that's really, um, hmm. it's a good thing. It gives rise to science. But it also, there are aspects of that that, you know, people people miss that like there's this sense that like the world there's meaning around every corner and under every rock hmm. i think it's interesting that the witches are kind of operating in this sort of like pre-christian like um hyper spiritualized world where eye of newt and toe of frog actually have spiritual import again hmm. Hmm. Heidi, respond yeah, I, I agree with Tim. The The terror of this play, on the other hand, though, is that there is no corresponding sacramental goodness in this play um, to mitigate that. Mm. Like the, the, it's, it's an inverted sacramental worldview to go back to that inversion again. So Tim's exactly right that you're, you're hitting on something super important. The eye of Newton, the tongue of frog, like they, they have power to function supernaturally to do something. Um, they have agency within them. Right. But there's, there, there's nothing to, to redeem that in this play. And I think that's where as Tim, at Tim, as you're pointing out, that's where we're hearkening back to paganism mm -hmm. instead of. I read recently. I can't remember who it was. A, a Shakespearean commentator who claimed that Macbeth is the most Christian tragedy. Yeah, I read of, the same thing because of the trajectory of of you know kind of movement from uh, a good man who is corrupted and experiences psychological um, suffering because of that, and then reaps the 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 full weight of the fall. And hmm. and and I think okay, but. That's not the Christian story. 
right? There is no intervening goodness. There's no intervening grace or mercy in this play to, to, uh, to counteract the darkness of the witches. And so in that sense, this is an entirely pagan play, as you pointed out, Tim, and not mm-hmm. a Christian one at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanna, we we got to keep an eye on that for the conclusion. Right. Because yeah. in the end, is it, you know, is Shakespeare making a, I don't know, is he making a Christian statement? I don't, that's a difficult, that's, that's a long debated topic that Absolutely. perhaps yes. uh, a bit fruitless, but or uh, that, would be, that would be an interesting, <laughs> if and when we do maybe measure for measure or, huh. yeah. That place like so that. intense, measure for measure. It's so intense. <laughs> and does it have a sort of like positive statement of Christianity within it? That's something I agree. Heidi's, I think exactly right. It's Macbeth is, if it's Shakespeare's most quote Christian play, it is the, it is a one kind of before Easter Sunday. It yeah. kind of stops before Easter Sunday. There's no redemptive turn in the play. It's just this like, like really acute diagnosis of like the sin that has corrupted the world. So is Macbeth then caught between the pagan world and the Christian world? Is that, I mean, is, is, it, is he having to sort of make a choice between them? Is that what the play is suggesting or representing? I think it would be if there was a corresponding force of grace, but there's not. So, and I think it, like we've been talking about, that's the existential terror of this play, that there is, there is either stays, it's either that Macbeth is completely giving in on one side of the uh, of the continuum. You have Macbeth is just a man, right? None of the and the mm-hmm. witches are a flaw, and and mm-hmm. it's just his ambition. And we already talked about that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he's completely controlled by the dark fate that that they have trapped him in, and he has no agency whatsoever. And I don't think though either of those ends of the continuum can be supported within the play. I think that has to be somewhere in between, and sure. um, so. That, and it's up to each individual reader, interpreter, actor, actress, or whatever to to make those decisions as you play. But they're both in there, right? So, but there is no Christian influence here. There is some talk of prayer. There is some talk of of Macbeth. You know, it's Lady Macbeth that I couldn't I couldn't kill him because he looked like my father while he was lying there. There's a couple of references to prayer, but there's no intervening mercy. And so I don't think it is that he's caught between the two. I think he's doomed from the start and that's terrible reality of this play. Hmm. Well, you know, it would be interesting if you were to, if you were to put like sort of a the fragrance of grace within the play, what form would it take? You know, yeah, I was, I was thinking about that. Right. right. I mean, we, we could imagine a clumsy sort of um, insertion of the possibility of the Eucharist. You know, like that that Macbeth brushes aside. That seems like a very very clumsy. Way. Well, maybe there's a character who. Is the anti Lady Macbeth right? Well, and, and who's I, trying actively yeah. to, re- to redeem him or offer him, 
you know, a way out or Shakespeare um, has lots like of those characters in his other plays. There's the priest in there. There's priests. There's some kind of, an, the closest thing we do get this to it though, is in act four with Edward, the confessor, the references to the King of England, who actually has a miraculous gift of healing, which mm. feels very clumsy to most readers. It feels uh-huh. like that's dragged in, right? Mm. Like Malcolm is referring to, um, this King of England's, and who is Edward? I don't know if they say that. I think they say Edward, but um, he's a historical figure who actually is said in the historical record to have a gift of healing and people would come to him and he, um, and, and his touch healed them. So you do have, I guess, some evidence, but it's completely outside. No wonder he was the king. Yes, but it's completely outside Scotland. And I think he's brought there. He's, I think one of the reasons he's dragged into the play is in order to make a reference to the fact that there's something good going on in the world, but not in Scotland. So it's an anti-Scotland play by an Englishman. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I don't think that's completely wrong since this was played to James the first. So there is a bit of a political, you know, appeal to the audience (laughs) here. Um, So so there is evidence of of Christian presence Hmm. of, of... but not in Scotland, not to Macbeth. Nobody appears, there's not a priest, there's not anybody saying, you know, kind of offering a counteraction to the witches and to Lady Macbeth and to his own ambition. So maybe the, maybe the references to, to Edward the Confessor and, you know, the fact that, it's, that he's not in Scotland are meant to re-emphasize the lack of such a thing being in this, right. this, yeah. this realm, in this That's realm. That's exactly what I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's another absence of grace in the country of Scotland. Hmm. Well, we talked, we really haven't, we've, we've talked about like seven lines and we've talked about a lot of <laughs> themes, but we've been going for 45 minutes or something like that. So act four is, is quite long. And I mean, act, act five is, you know, not as long and we'll have the Q and a episode. <laughs> But I, I was wondering if there is a is there a key part for either of you a key a key line a key um, a key moment that gets to the heart of where Macbeth's soul is in Act Four as as the hmm. play is hitting its real you know climax. Was there something? Is there? A, I'm, I'll keep talking for a second. What you think about? It. Is there? Is there a moment? Is there a, even a couplet or a, or a single line or maybe a speech or it could be a conversation? Or I'll just go on talking here for a second. Um, <laughs> that 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 really represents the the place that he has his 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 soul and his mind are at this point in the play. Because as we hit the climax, he's either he's either going to keep going down or he's going to reverse his ways in some way. I mean, he's already pretty far gone. But, you know, the degree to which this is, is a tragedy is determined by where his soul is at the end of Act 4, I feel like. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if there's a, a place that represents that or, you know, some, some moment or something. Heidi? I, I think his closing aside, after he has met with the witches... In 4-1. Uh, he's, he's with Linux, yeah, so it's 4-1. Okay. I think it's just before the opening of 4-2. Yeah, it, it is. is. Line 160. Right. Time thou anticipates my dread exploits. The flighty purpose never, ne'er, excuse me, the flighty purpose never is or took. 
unless the deed go with it. From this moment, the very firstling of my heart shall be the firstling of my hand. And even <sighs> now, to crown my thoughts with acts, be it thought and done, the castle of Macduff I will surprise, seize upon Fife, give to the edge of the sword his wife, his babes, and all unfortunate souls that trace him in his line. No more boasting like a fool. This deed I'll do before this purpose cool. So no more thinking about what he's got to do. There's only the doing from here on out. And there are a couple of moments we'll find out that he's, he's turned away from kind of being pure action. And he is kind of forced into a repose of thought, especially after his wife dies. But so is, he is just, it's pure blood from here on out from Macbeth. So then does that mean that he has been so enchanted by Lady Macbeth and the witches that he is now free? He, he is now, it is now unnecessary. Like he's, he's beyond their enchantment. Like yeah, like he's all about past him. his conscience. He's, yeah. he's or left his conscience now. Yeah. The enchantment has been so powerful that it doesn't even, doesn't even need to be there anymore. It's transformed him. Yeah. Now, I mean, I think it's very important to see whether or not this is true, whether or not he can truly override his conscience and just do the horrid deeds. I don't think he can. He doesn't. T- Go ahead. Well, how did you how did you perform this scene? How did you how did you give that that little speech there that that those lines those ten lines or whatever it was? How did you you know what did you did you move? Were you very still? Did you how did you intonate things like that? What kind of decisions were you choices were you making? I did it as if I was trying to like coach myself into believing something that was not believable. Hmm. But you know by the but by the hmm. end, I was going to act as if I totally believed that I did not have a conscience anymore. So yeah, I was kind of coaching myself into believing, uh, we're not going to think anymore. We're just going to do this. We're just going to do this. Hi, did you have another, another scene that you think is represents that, that you would choose? No, I think that's, that's exactly what I would choose, but I do have a scene that is the contrast to that, which I think hmm. is, um, really important and and tells you who is is like this little tiny light of redemption coming um and that is after um it's in hold on act four the last act or the last scene of act four is it when ross tells yes yes it is and we absolutely have to talk about this little moment um this, I think, is very insightful Let's into Macbeth because it's the opposite. This is what Macbeth could be. This is what a man can be. If Macbeth, yeah. if Macbeth is the man that is, a, that is inverted, so distorted that he's the upside-down version of what a man can be, he's actually losing his humanity at this point. He's becoming a madman. He's becoming a, a, an animal. He's losing, he's quenching the Imago Dei within himself. And that's yeah. what Tim, you pointed out. Then here we have So this is, this is, what you're about to read is 4.4? Yes. Is it? Okay. Yes. Um, and it is, I'm going to read Macduff's line before it, starting in line 218. Um, this is Macduff when he has been told he's lost his family because Macbeth has sent soldiers to slaughter his family. 
So his wife is dead, his children are dead. And the, there's a very poignant scene. And I've, I, I think every stage play I've seen makes Lady Macbeth pregnant in the scene. Have you, I've, it's not always the way case in. Um, yes. And did you play it like that when she's pregnant? Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah, you kind of have to because it's just yeah. this adds this other level of poignancy to it that that these are this is a family that's being slaughtered for no reason other than Macbeth is going insane. Mm-hmm. Um. So anyway, this is Macduff's response. He's just learned he's lost his family, and he's speaking of himself, and he says he has no children. All my pretty ones. Did you say all? Oh, Hellkite, all? What, all my pretty chickens and their dam at one fell swoop. And these lines here, Malcolm, who's going to take the throne in Macbeth's, uh, he's the heir to the throne after after Macbeth is gone. He says, dispute it like a man. And I think this is so important because the word man has been explored from every angle in this play. Lady Macbeth coming at him saying, act like a man, take the throne. Macbeth, commenting on how he's no i'm still a man and and then there's the banquet scene when the word man is explored and deconstructed and inverted and all these things and, and here's malcolm who's bought into this culture of manhood right dispute it like a man go fight be like be step into your manhood and he and Macduff responds i shall do so but i must also feel it as a man I cannot but remember such things were that were most precious to me. So I think this little contrast here is profoundly important in the play. This is why beware Macduff. This is why the witches say, be careful of Macduff, because this is a man who's actually a man. He's he's going to fight for what he's going to avenge himself. He's going to be the one to kill Macbeth, actually. But... He's also saying, you can't, like, give me a minute to feel this. Yeah. Let me mourn for my family. These things were precious to me. Don't just tell me to go out and fight. This little, like, to contrast that vision of manhood that's expressed in these few lines with the manhood inverted and distorted and corrupted manhood that we see in Macbeth, I think this is the, the kind of seed of redemption in the play. And and Heidi, for me, if Macduff does not take that, hey guys, let me let me pause you there for a second. Yeah, the uh, water Uh, mitigation people just got here, so I almost made it. So I'm going to duck off here for a second, and uh, I'll try to get back on. But I'll let Heidi or Tim, when you can close out the show, if I don't make it back in the last 15 or 20 minutes or whatever. So carry on. Thank you. All right. Okay. If Macduff does not take that time feel the loss of his wife and children. I wonder, and he snaps immediately into, now I must have my revenge. I must have my revenge. I'm going to step into pure action. If he doesn't take that moment to feel like the loss, I wonder if he kind of like, it would be very easy for him to kind of become another Macbeth. Right. Right. You know? Yes. This is like hope, this, he, I think, here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think Macbeth, if Macbeth is trying to suffocate his conscience and just do away with it so that he can remain in power and complete the killings that he needs to complete to 
secure, you know, keep hold of the throne. Um, it would be so easy for Macduff to just move into sort of to reply like for like. Yes. I am going to move into just the action of revenge um, because rather than mourning the loss, I am going to now become like the thing that, that gave me this loss. Right. I absolutely agree with that. And I think that it is... I've always wondered, ever since I noticed this little part and thought that the word man and how it is treated in Macbeth, and I have always thought Macbeth ended very hopefully with Malcolm on the throne and, um, you know, that long conversation and um, I can't remember which scene it is in three, maybe it's this scene between Macbeth, Macduff and Malcolm in uh-huh. which Malcolm tries to tell him that he's lustful and he's greedy and he's violent and therefore he's yes. just, but really he's just testing Macduff to see if Macduff um, cares about virtue and cares about leadership. And so yeah. I always thought that that is, this bodes very, very well for Malcolm, right? And maybe right. that's the case, but this, even this little, how this ends, it's Macduff, I think. And I wonder if he's the only one because even as he goes on, um, in line 230, Malcolm says, you know, Macduff has just said, let me feel it like a man. And mm-hmm. Malcolm responds, be this the whetstone of your sword. Let grief mm-hmm. convert to anger. Blunt not the heart. Enrage it. So, and then his last day, down a few lines later, and this man question, Malcolm's last words before Act 5 are, this tune goes, manly. Come, go we to the king. Our power is ready. Yeah. So I think Malcolm still has bought into this false version of manhood. Oh, I agree. And so I, agree. I don't know if the play ends hopefully. What do you think? Okay, well, here, here's what I might help me on the historical aspect of it. But think of it like this. We have the promise that Banquo's son, Banquo's lineage, is going to be on the throne. Right. right? Which is how do we do that? Right. If we're going to put Malcolm on the throne, well, I think we need to see that Malcolm is not the best man for the job. I think we need to see that someone will eventually supplant him and he will rule with greater justice. And we presume that's that's going to be Fleance, that's going to be the son of Banquo. Right. Because I think I think you're right. I read Malcolm. It's funny because Malcolm, when he's speaking to Macduff, saying, I'm not ready. I am just so full of vices. And Macduff is kind of brushing him off. But then in the moment of crisis, you see how immature Malcolm is. And he's just like, come on, bro. Let's just go beat up the king. That's the answer here. Right. And he doesn't have the insight to recognize Macduff just lost his family. Right. Give, lost give him a family. Minute. Right. And you're going to like try to convert this into payola so you can kind of <laughs> get your, you know, so you can get your revenge right away. I mean, I understand the motivation, but I do think that we're supposed to see Malcolm as immature and not ready. But I do think ultimately we see there's a redemption beyond the horizon, beyond the end of the play which is, okay, the right man is on the throne, but he does not have what Banquo had and what presumably Banquo's lineage had. Right, right. 
Yeah, I I completely agree with that. And I, I hadn't thought of, of that as him kind of, as Shakespeare kind of undercutting Malcolm so that even, you know, he's way better than Macbeth. Let's give him that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. He's a better man and a better king. And he's a rightful king, which of course was super important within the historical context because wasn't it James the first? Shakespeare's performing this play before who wrote right. the Divine Right of Kings treatise. Right. Oh, so obviously yeah. the Divine Right of Kings is a pretty important thing to uphold in this play. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, right. But how do you undercut him a little bit? And Shakespeare does it beautifully here. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He does. Heidi, I, w- I want to use this opportunity to, um, to talk about Shakespeare as like a craftsman. For a huh. second. I wonder if we could change gears for a second. Yeah, please. Um, I think I have one thing to say followed by three things to say. The first <laughs> thing I have to say. Is, so it's is that, one point with subpoints, or is it four points? <laughs> no, it's four points. It's four points. The, the first and the, and the final third are like just kind of unrelated. They're 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 related in that they both address the artist's task. Oh, um, good. The first one is Shakespeare, if there is a supreme artist, you know, in the Western canon, Shakespeare's one of the first that comes to mind. I think Mozart is on that short list also. And counter to kind of like the, the you know, I think dying but still prevalent notion that the artist is against making money or doesn't care about making money or is not interested in the business of, you know, performing his task. Man, Shakespeare knew how to pay his bills. That's right. <laughs> like a boss. His bills. I'm like a boss. And I don't just mean that he was, you know, he was in real estate. He like knew how to pay his bills that way. But he also knew who was paying, who was footing the bill for his plays and he knew how to gently give honor to the people like James I that were sitting in his audience and that presumably were his primary patrons even more than his audience was. Huh. And we see in Macbeth that he knew how to do that. And I, and I think when I hear college professors you know, kind of snickering that Shakespeare was not above, you know, getting his hands dirty with filthy lucre. What I hear in that is like, you've never been an artist. That's right. You've you've never, you've never had to like figure out how to pay your bills. I mean, so it's easy to kind of like sit back on your throne of lies. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But it's easy, it's easy to sit back and to, to, snicker when Shakespeare makes these, you know, allusions to James the First's um, great abilities as a ruler and his insights. No. I mean, like, right. I, I get it. Yeah, he's kind of greasing the skids, but it's part of the task. Okay. Absolutely. That's point one. And by the way, Mozart knew how to pay his bills also. Oh my goodness, Mozart knew how to pay his bills. He also knew how to overspend his income, which was part of Mozart's problem. But right, anyway. well, and to, ma- and to maintain 
greatness without becoming a sycophant while still being able to please a high audience and a low audience is a remarkable achievement while producing great enduring literature that we're talking about on podcasts hundreds of years later. Like there's like, that's honestly, it's ridiculous to judge that because that's an amazing accomplishment. Absolutely. Anyway, continue. Point two. Point two of four. (laughs) In in this act, what I really noticed was Shakespeare, the craftsman, a master of dramatic conflict. Huh. And I, I think we give credit rightly for Shakespeare as the wordsmith because it's the words are so beautiful. They're mm-hmm. so gorgeous. They're so ripe with metaphors. They're so visually active. But there are a few, three things that I was thinking of that Shakespeare does that just make you want to pay attention to the plot and the characters. And the first one is every time somebody steps on the stage, they want something mm-hmm. and they're pursuing something. Like every time. So, it would be very easy in Act Four, Scene Two, with Macduff and with Malcolm. It would be so easy to have these two characters just poetically speaking about what a bad guy Macbeth is, you know, and to have some yep. beautiful language about what an imposter he is and how much wrong he has done. But no, Shakespeare gives us conflict between these two characters. Malcolm is testing Macduff. Macduff is kind of um, eschewing uh, Malcolm's complaints about himself. And so they're kind of going back and forth. And that's like, if there's a single thing that a playwright has to master, it's that every scene has conflict. Every scene has conflict. And that conflict is born of kind of like warring desires. So like the first one is everybody has a desire. The second thing is, Every scene is rife with conflict. These two characters, three characters, five characters, seeking to get what they want, come in conflict with each other. And the third thing I think that he does exceptionally well is that when that he entrenches his characters into like desires or convictions or agendas, and it takes something, it takes really powerful events to get them to change. And uh-huh. when they do change, we, we get to watch it. Because like there's, so Macduff is entrenched that he is, he's leaving. He's gone. He's been thrown out by Macbeth. This is his goal. Malcolm is kind of testing him, sure. But Macduff is kind of resolved on what his action plan is. And the only thing that really is going to be able to change Macduff is the fact that Macbeth slaughters his family. Yeah. So now he moves from fleeing until, okay, now I'm going to stay and I, something has to be done. I have to attack Macbeth. And that's the, the beautiful scene that we've been talking about is him recognizing that his family is gone, that he now has to feel what that feels like and then he has to move into action. But I mean, I think the thing more than anything else that audiences love to see and that readers love to read is that those moments when characters transform, mm-hmm. when, they, when they go from one 
set of convictions to a different set of convictions or one path of action to a different path of action. And Shakespeare is just so good at that. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's really good. All right. Point three. That was it. That was it? No, that's awesome. Change okay. on stage. Yep. So like desire, <laughs> desire, and those desires, number two, they create conflict. And number three is like, he lets us see the change. Yeah. He puts it on stage and lets us see the change. I agree. Well, and I think that this, I mean, we we're talking about um, the, the act four specifically. You know, act three, it tends to be some kind of turning point, some kind of, yeah. you know, climactic action that that uh that if it had that rules the rest of the play right but in act four you begin to see the the implications of that action yeah um, and that the unraveling of it in the mod that the way that that's going to play out and so act four is often like very very dramatic and here we have that we have so Macbeth has gone from killing the king, that's pretty bad, to killing his best friend, that's, I mean, arguably Mm -hmm. worse, right? Mm -hmm. To killing a man's entire family. Like, just children. And I... And just the way, even just the way that that scene plays out when the young boy is asking his father as a traitor, like, I can barely get through that scene. Oh, yeah. It's so, so... Deep, like just full of grief and loss and um to your point the warring desires that we see played out on the stage like the stakes are very very high yeah um here so Heidi also Lady Macduff's <laughs> we're I mean, we might get into the deep end here okay let's let's think about in like the the beginning of two, Macbeth comes home to Lady Macbeth, and the question on the table is, um, are we going to kill the king? Macbeth doesn't want to, and Lady Macbeth convinces him, right? I think it's interesting that Lady Macduff has a complaint against Macduff, that he is kind of like he's a coward yeah he's and a traitor and a right. traitor she and tells I, her son that his father is a traitor yeah. and that's how they die it's un- right. it's so painful it's, it's such awful. a painful scene it's such a painful scene and i i don't know i, I don't know that the text tells us if macduff anticipates that his kind of at least for the time being, his memory with his wife and his son will be that he left them. Right. But he still thinks that it's the right thing to do. And right. we will find out he is, the, he is far from a coward. He is right. not a coward. Right. So I just think that I, I, I wonder, and I'm like, I'm, I'm a, I think I'm a little bit nervous about um, treading on the whole question of like whether or not Shakespeare is recommending that uh, that these male figures <laughs> resist their wife's advice. Right. That's what happens in like these two scenes. Right. And I think for Lady Macbeth, her her advice her advice is pernicious. Mm-hmm. I think with Lady Macduff, I don't get the sense that her advice is pernicious, but it's based on 
a pretty deep misunderstanding of what's going on. Right, right. She's foolish, Lady Macduff is. Yeah. You can see that, which I think it makes her death even more tragic that that's, you know, if she was, it, it would have a kind of a noble grandeur if she was this wonderful kind of um, balancing figure to Lady Macbeth, if she was a like a brave and a bold and a, and a gracious and sincere woman, and then her children, you know, die declaring that their father loved them and that he was a hero and a patriot. I think that would undercut the, I, I think what Shakespeare does to make them just kind of fool, her foolish and yeah. her son dying, thinking his father's a traitor and is makes this scene so painful and unfinished. It has that quality of like, no, they can't die. Especially since Macduff is such a hero. No, they're gone. Yeah. So that is, and the other thing kind of goes to the fate and free will question about this scene in that it is because like Macduff, as you pointed out, was fleeing. He wasn't going to go back. He was going to escape Macbeth's tyranny. He was gone. But because Macbeth made foolish and insane decision to slaughter this innocent family back comes Macduff to fight him and down goes Macbeth to Macduff's sword in act five uh-huh. so did Mac, is it Macbeth's fault I talk about this with my students when I teach this play what was this fated or was it free will right there's there's another yeah. kind of layer to that fate and free will question here and then the whole time you're just grieving this horrible insane tragedy that these insane people die for no yeah. reason at all. Yeah. Other than just Macbeth has now said, I'm going to, whatever my heart wants, I'm going to do. I'll do it immediately. Yeah. Because right. I'm a crazy person. Right. <laughs> so, um, well, that's probably all the time we have for today. Do you have any final thoughts, Tim? Well, I have a story that I want to tell readers or excuse me, listeners. Some listeners might know that, you know, you and I were part of this conference uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina this weekend that also coincided with a surprise party for you on Saturday night. It was so much fun. Thank you for being there. It was so much fun. Oh, it was was just the most, one of the most fun nights of my whole 40 years that I've had on this earth. It was so fun to see, you know, we were in on it from the beginning and uh, I kind of, I I snowed you or I attempted to snow you late in the day on Saturday. Your your surprise party was Saturday evening. And I was like, hey, what are we going to do tonight? (laughs) Because I just didn't, I thought, (laughs) I doubt that she has any notion that Scott and Emily and Owen and her kids are going to show up. You know, I doubt she has any notion, but just in case she does, let me try to throw her off the trace a little bit. It was perfect. You were like, <laughs> do you want to go out? Do you want to go out tonight? I'm like, oh, I can't. I, I, I have, yeah. So anyway, that was, you, 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 your little ruse worked. Pulled the wool over my gullible eyes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That is a prologue for, I wish that David was here to hear this. He's going to have to listen to this. I heard an exchange between your son. How old is he? He's 12, turning 13 in a couple of weeks. Between your son and David's David's oldest, uh-huh. who, how old is he? He's eight, seven he, or eight, I think. Yeah. Okay. 
So your son, okay, so I drove my car around the corners that when you show up to David's house, that you don't, you know, it doesn't look like there's this huge swath of cars right. sitting out front and thus, you know, we... I might have been on to something at that you point. You might have been yes. on to something. Yeah. <laughs> so I drive my car around the corner and I park it and I'm coming up the steps of David's house and Coulter and Jack are out there and they're talking and Coulter has a big picture book under his arm that I think is like a, a Shakespeare for kids kind of book. And I promise you, this is the conversation that ensued. Coulter says, what do you think is, to Jack, what do you think is Shakespeare's best comedy? <laughs> Midsummer Night's Dream or Much Ado About Nothing? And I'm like, oh my gosh, Jack, age 12, like thinks about it for a second. And he says, it's Much Ado About Nothing. I think it's the funnier of the play. And I just, it was another one of those moments that I just thought, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this. I cannot believe this. Anyway, I just wanted you and David to hear that story because it was just so remarkable. Thank you. You're doing something right. No, Tim, thank you so much. That does it, like, warms my heart. And Jack loves Much Ado About Nothing. Benedict is his favorite character, and he has lots of thoughts on Benedict and Much Ado. <laughs> and that's, oh, I just love that. I love everything about that. I love that the boys have their little relationship. I love that it happened at my birthday party. I love that they are talking about Shakespeare. And that they have opinions on which of the comedies right. is the greater. That's right. amazing. Amazing. It, it is amazing. Uh, and all we have to do is just let the plays speak for themselves, right? Yeah. They, right. Uh, I just, that is, thank that you for moment. telling me that. I do Absolutely. wish it. So we'll have to make him listen. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Oh, thank you, Tim. And thank you for being there. This is. Oh, I wouldn't have missed it. No oh, way. Well, you're the coolest. All right. Well, and listeners, thanks for tuning in. We know we've had a couple of weeks hiatus from the plays the thing, but we are back. We are back with our thoughts and discussions on Macbeth. Uh, so thank you for joining us on the plays the thing on the Close Read Podcast Network. We'll catch you next week for Act Five of Macbeth. Thank you and happy reading. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.